Welcome into another edition of the Checkerboard Chat. I am your host, the sports editor here at the Daily Beacon, Ryan Schumpert. Plenty to get to in today's episode. Lots going on in the Tennessee sports world. Tennessee finds a new athletic director, a new leader of its sports department last week in Danny White. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about what that means for Tennessee's football search as White is currently looking for the replacement of Jeremy Pruitt, who was terminated last week. We covered all of that in last week's episode, but more to get to than just that. Tennessee basketball team with a tough 0-2 week, its first of the year as it falls to Missouri and Florida. And then the Lady Vols is a little more exciting week. A tight, tight loss to rival UConn, but they bounced back with a win over rival Kentucky in commanding fashion on Sunday. We'll bring in our beat writers for both those teams, Jeffrey Russell with the Tennessee basketball, men's basketball team, and Josh Lane, our assistant sports editor, and one of our writers on the Lady Vols beat. But with that, we'll start just with football and everything that's been going on in a, a chaotic week as Tennessee was first looking to hire an athletic director and then looking to hire a head football coach. Chancellor Donnie Plowman made that very clear last Monday when she met with the media to announce Pruitt's termination and Philip Fulmer retirement or force out, you could say he's going to be getting paid $1.3 million buyout essentially, um, though he retired. But Tennessee finds his replacement in very quick time and well, it's frankly a really impressive hire in Danny White. Danny White currently at Central Florida before coming to Tennessee where he had rejuvenated the Central Florida program and really just taken UCS athletics to a, a place they really hadn't been before. We'll get into some of what he did there here in just a second, but first hit you with all the details of him coming to Tennessee. He's going to be paid $1.8 million a year. That is a raise from what he had at Central Florida where he's making about $1.2 million and some change a year, which made him, believe it or not, the highest paid athletic director in the state of Florida over Scott Strickland at the University of Florida and higher than what both Florida State and Miami's athletic directors were making. And it also marks an upgrade over what Philip Fulmer is making. Philip Fulmer is making $1 million a year with his contract. Now Tennessee almost paying its athletic director double of that $1.8 million, but from everything that you can tell, everything anyone really says, it seems like a pretty good investment. Danny White, he comes from a college athletics family. He's talked about that in his opening press conference, that he's been around it for as long as he can remember. He can remember when he was a little kid, teams being at his house and him getting piggyback rides from football and basketball and baseball players and all that stuff. But, I mean, it's really crazy when you look at what his family has done, his Father, athletic director at Duke, has been at Notre Dame before. His older brother, Mike, is the, believe it or not, the head basketball coach at Florida, who was funny. Chancellor Plowman was saying during White's introductory press conference that the first time they had talked was over a Zoom Tuesday night, which was during that Tennessee-Florida basketball game that we'll get to in a little bit, obviously. I think uh, the Tennessee's new athletic director was probably a little bit more happy by the result of that game was his brother got a big win that Chancellor Plowman was. And then he has a younger brother who's the athletic director at FAU, which certainly has a little bit of importance in tennis in his job, Tennessee now is that he was Lane Kiffin's boss for three seasons, Florida Atlantic. And obviously that's a popular name. People have linked to the Tennessee job. Danny White talked extensively last week about having to hire someone that he trusts. 
and that not only from a compliance standpoint, but from a personal standpoint and from getting a coach that's a real good role model for the kids. Obviously, those are some things that have been red flags for Lane Kiffin, but Danny White has no one better to talk to about Lane Kiffin's character and whether he's the right man for the job than his brother. He has a sister who is also an assistant athletic director at SMU. So you get the gist. He comes from an athletics family. This is really what his family does. But that on its own surface doesn't really mean a whole lot. Derek Dooley came from a football family. His dad was one of the best coaches in the history of the Southeastern Conference in his time at Georgia, and he was a failed head coach at Tennessee. What makes this Danny White hire so impressive from Tennessee is what Danny White has done at previous stops. He rejuvenated that Central Florida program. He's made impressive hires. He's known as an innovator. He's known as a builder. I think he used the term builder to describe himself about 10 times during his introductory press conference. But what really makes him most impressive is what he has done hiring coaches. And I'm going to dive straight into that. His first athletic director stop was at Buffalo, where he hired one football coach, and that was Lance Leopold, who was the coach at the University of Wisconsin-Stillwater, a Division three school in Wisconsin. And he was incredibly successful for national championships, made it to five games. And Danny White's really the guy who gave him his big shot in Division one, And the results there were mixed for a few years. I mean, Buffalo was in a tough spot when Leopold got hired, but in two really tough years for Leopold starting, but since then, three straight, three straight years that they've made it to a bowl game, four straight years that they've won six or more games, two bowl wins, a MAC division championship, and a guy that's you haven't seen a ton of ties to his name in the Tennessee job, but he is definitely an up-and-coming coach. He interviewed for the Vanderbilt job earlier this offseason. He's a guy that's well thought of. And, and certainly a pretty solid hire at Buffalo. But really what Danny White did more impressive at Buffalo than hiring Lance Leopold is what he did in the basketball. And he brought in Bobby Hurley, the former Duke guard, to take over the Bulls program. And Hurley was just there two seasons, but made it to the second round of the NCAA tournament in the second season, his first season. He took over a team that was a losing team the year before. He won 19 games, had a confident program. And then obviously, like I said, just mentioned a really good second season. After that, Hurley got the Arizona State job, getting a big promotion. And Danny White was once again looking to find a basketball coach. And at that point, he maybe made an even more impressive hire than Hurley. Hiring, at that time, Buffalo assistant coach Nate Oates as the head basketball coach. And you talk about a risk. Oates was was really unproven. He was just an assistant coach for two seasons under Hurley. And before that, he had been a high school coach in the Buffalo area. And Nate Oates was, was really terrific. Made three NCAA tournaments in four seasons as the Buffalo head coach. Some of y'all may remember he had a real big upset in the NCAA tournament over Arizona one season, DeAndre Ayton, that Arizona team coached by Sean Miller. They were a four seed. They lost to Buffalo. And that success and that win helped Nate Oates get another job. And he, as most of y'all probably know listening is not a head coach at Alabama and in his second season has the tied program ranked in the top 10 and has really been the best team in the SEC. So a really good eye, some impressive hires at Buffalo. And then in 2016 or 2015, correction on that, he took the central Florida job in November of 2015. And he was immediately tasked with hiring a new head football coach, very similar to what he's happened to do at Tennessee. And I think that one, I, Almost everyone would agree on his, his most 
impressive hire as he brought Oregon offensive coordinator Scott Frost in to run the Knights football program. And Scott Frost inherited a dumpster fire. Now, there were no NCAA investigations, but a similar bad situation to whoever White hires at Tennessee will be facing. Obviously, the challenges there are different, but not, not a very desirable job when Scott Frost got it. Central Florida was coming off an 0-12 season. The next year, Central Florida went 6-6. and The year after that, they went 14-0, and claimed the national championship. I mean, it's, it's truly whatever you want to say about claiming the national championship. I get what Danny White was trying to do to stick up for his players. I think it's personally a little silly. But no matter what you think about claiming the national championship, that is one of the most impressive feats anyone has, has achieved in college football in the past few years to go from – in two seasons to be an 0-12 program to a 13-0 program, a remarkable achievement, a remarkable job that Scott Frost did. Obviously, he stayed one more season. They went 13-0 before losing to LSU in the Fiesta Bowl. They won 27 straight games, ended 27-1 and in his last 28 games before he took over at his alma mater of Nebraska. But just an incredible achievement, and obviously Danny White deserves a good amount of credit for that too hiring Frost, putting Frost in a position to be successful, and also doing a lot to kind of innovate and, and really put a lot of energy into that Central Florida program. After Scott Frost departed for Nebraska, he turned and was looking for a new head coach, and he kind of went the similar route that he did in Scott Frost. And when he hired Josh Hubel, the, at that time Missouri offense coordinator, another coach with no head coaching experience, the same as Scott Frost. He was really known probably more for – anything from his run as an Oklahoma quarterback where he was incredibly successful the 2000 player of the year as he was a starting quarterback on the BCS national championship team that season in his coaching he had extents as at Oklahoma as a co-offense coordinator and quarterbacks coach under Bob Stoops as kind of got his full first time chance to run his own offense at Utah State being a full offense coordinator on his own and then like I said went to Missouri before that the results there have been mixed. I don't think you can expect hardly anyone to come in and have that exact same success that he inherited just because what Scott Frost did was so impressive. But in three years, 28-8 and eight record for Hupel at Central Florida. That first season was a really good one. They went 12-1. and one. They were able to win the conference championship. And then after that, 10-3 and three season in 2019, 6-4 season, they kind of took a step back in 2020. But a guy who's done a pretty good job, I think the book is still out a little bit on how successful of a head coach he will be. But certainly not a bad hire by Danny White. And that will lead us kind of into the Tennessee coaching search. It's one that there isn't a whole lot out about. People are kind of trying to figure out what Danny White's going to do. Danny White talked about in his opening press conference of how his last couple football coaching searches, all the guys that run hot boards and who everyone thought he was going to go after, he didn't go after. He kind of got surprise names. So I think that makes it hard to figure out who he's targeting and who he wants to go after. Some of the names that you see kind of consistently are Tony Elliott, current Clemson offensive coordinator. And then besides that, I think you're going to see both White and the scouting firm the search firm excuse me that he hired they're kind of going after some big names I think there's no doubt that Tennessee has the money but you've seen Tennessee linked to kind of putting some fillers out there I wouldn't say they're closely involved with these guys right now but guys like Matt Campbell James Franklin 
Billy Napier, guys are going after. Are you going to be able to get them? It's hard to say. It would be a very tough pool to bring any of those guys from their perspective jobs. Obviously, Campbell and Napier have been very, very willing to stay at their current jobs, Iowa State and Louisiana. They've turned down a lot of pretty good jobs, jobs that would probably be easier to win at than the Tennessee job that they would be inheriting right now. And James Franklin is obviously at a big, big job in Penn State, and he doesn't, there's nothing he can achieve at Tennessee that he couldn't achieve at Penn State. But those are guys that we're going to go after. After that, who knows? Like I said, Tony Elliott's the one really popular name that you hear a lot. Besides that, it's, it's, really, it's really a lot of secrecy around this coaching search. Is not a whole lot of people, not a whole lot of Knoxville media know Danny White. Not a lot of people around Tennessee's athletic department know Danny White much. And he's kind of doing this thing on his own with the help of a, of a search firm. So there's not a whole lot of loose information out there. But the one thing that continues to stay a consistent theme from whoever you talk to, whoever you listen to, that's the Danny White wants to move quickly. He wants to go quick in identifying new head coach and getting someone in to kind of provide some stability for the program as Tennessee has had uh, more, more players enter the transfer portal in the last week and star players too. Henry Toa Toa, star linebacker, decided to go in as the Quivaris Crouch and running back Eric Gray, offensive tackle Jameer Johnson, as well as defensive back Keyshawn Lawrence. Not all those guys are 100% set in stone going to go somewhere other than Tennessee, I think, especially for a guy like Toa Toa and Lawrence, there's a chance. They can come back for Tennessee, to Tennessee next year. And I think White knows this, and White wants to get a coach in place to help convince him to come back. So while there is still unclarity in the search, a lot of questions as of who Danny White is targeting, it looks like they're going to move quick, and it looks like we could potentially have a head coach at the University of Tennessee just this week. We will continue to monitor things to the best of our ability here at UT Daily Beacon. We'll keep you updated with Everything you need to know in Danny White's search to find the Volunteers' 27th head coach. Next segment, we will be back talking a little bit of Tennessee basketball. Not a good week for the Vols. It's kind of been the consistent positive this December and January as everything has mostly gone negative with the football program, but not a good week for the Tennessee basketball program. Me and Jeffrey Russell will dive deeper into that here in our second segment. Welcome into the second segment of this checkerboard chat. I am Ryan Shumpert, joined by our basketball beat writer, Jeffrey Russell. It was not the best week for a Tennessee basketball team that's had a great year. They entered ranked number six. They leave with two losses, falling in Gainesville 75-49 to Tuesday night before returning home to Knoxville and losing to Missouri 73-64. to The Vols dropped 12 spots in the polls to number 18. We just talked to Rick Barnes as they get – Prepared for Mississippi State, Jeffrey, what was your kind of your biggest takeaway from what Barnes said a few days removed from a, a tough week? So for me, I think the biggest takeaways were the team needs to get healthy and the team needs to find some, some consistency on the offensive end. Uh, they've always been solid defensively and they, they're finding ways to kind of make it work on the defensive end, even, even without Jaden Springer and kind of a hobbled Santiago Vescovi. But offensively, they just can't really create like they used to because Jaden Springer has been, you know, just a, a real driving force in the offense. So I think a lot of it has to go with just playing out, being healthy. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a lot of it. And in one thing, kind of going off the same thing that Barnes said was interesting to me talking about the offenses. He wants he was happy with the way the team shot a lot of threes on Saturday, which now granted they got a lot of good looks in the rhythm of the offense, but he's typically a guy that's not wanting to take, you know, upwards of 20 threes. And 
they shot a lot the other night and he seemed happy with that. And then when he's talking about Eve's Ponds play, you had a, a much better game on Saturday. He said, he's, he's shooting the three the way we want him to pull that shot. We want defenses to have to respect it. So cer- certainly an interesting thing to watch as Tennessee goes, goes forward. Jaden Springer is probably the best person on this team at getting to the basket and creating. And I think you've seen a little bit with Josiah James and Santiago Viscovi and Victor Bailey. Those guys have strengths, but getting into the basket and creating their own shots really isn't that. And that's something that's really been missed with Springer. Yeah, I mean, Springer is kind of the the straw that stirs the drink for the Tennessee offense. I mean, his dynamic ability to get to the basket, and he's really good at finding his teammates, too, when he cuts to the basket. He usually will dump it off to Keon Johnson or find Victor Bailey in the corner, and that's just something they really haven't had, that kind of slasher that can get to the basket but still have the eye for the teammates. Yeah, certainly. I mean, Keon Johnson's another guy that that is good at getting to the basket, probably the next best guy in the team. But he he certainly doesn't have the the complete control of his game the way Springer does that he's and Keon Jobs is not a bad passer. He doesn't turn the ball over a whole lot, but Springer has a has a unique ability to create open shots that really no one else in this team does. And when you see John Fulkerson struggle and they can't play inside out, it's really it's really been a big problem this this week. And it'll be interesting going forward because Barnes really didn't give us a whole lot of an indication on what Springer's been doing in practice and if he will be back this week. Yeah, I, it, it'll definitely be a, a, a strong uh, road to go for the Vols. I think they'll they'll definitely be in a, in a world of trouble against definitely a good Mississippi State team, Mississippi State team if, uh, if they don't have Springer. Yeah, I think it's, it's obvious, and obviously we've both talked about how big of a difference he makes offensively, but what I think stood out Saturday more than anything is how much they missed him defensively, and that's something that he Barnes didn't talk specifically about Springer, but he that was when he was asked to evaluate the game that would, or evaluate Saturday's game. That's the first thing he said is they didn't guard the ball well enough. And he had two guards go for 27 points and 18 points. And I think it was very clear how much they missed Springer. Viscovi battling, hit pointer, not a great defender to begin with, but he struggled with that. Victor Bailey, definitely not the strength of his game. And then I think you've seen probably Keon Johnson's two worst defensive games of the season back-to-back. And it came really at the worst time is Tennessee's really going to have to try to shore up the, the man defense while they kind of grow offensively and, and try to get things back on track. How, but obviously with the team right now, two, two losses in one week, it's, it's not all just Springer. What, what else when you look at Tennessee is, is kind of their biggest problems and, and maybe the more concerning ones long-term for this team? I think the the most concerning problem is they don't have a versatility on offense. They they really struggle to play the inside-out game. They can kind of step out, and they have some guys who can make shots, make the mid-range shot, even step back and make a three-pointer. But they really struggle to find an inside game at times when they go up against teams that have, you know, really solid big post players because – John Fulkerson and, and Eves Ponds are very athletic, very quick players, but they aren't really built for, you know, a big bruising battle in the paint. And so they struggle to really find those points in the paint and also struggle to rebound. And Rick Barnes talked about it today, talked about the issues with rebounding and said, you know, Josiah can really rebound the ball. Devontae Gaines can really rebound the ball. And that's great. But at some point, you're going to have to also have your post players step up and find a way to either, you know, keep other players off the board or get those rebounds themselves. Yeah, I think that's been the fascinating thing about this whole season is I feel like everyone with Fulkerson's kind of just been, he'll get it going, just wait, he'll get it going. 
And at this point, I think it's a fair question is if he very well may not get it going. And I think that's, that's confusing. Um, you look at last season, he was playing the exact same role. There's, there's no doubt that John Fulkerson is an undersized center and that makes his life harder, but he was an undersized center last year and he, it was the same front court. He wasn't playing the four and he was able to score at a high rate. And Rick Barnes has said it multiple times. The scouting report's pretty easy on him right now. It's be physical with him, push him off the block. And, and he really hasn't had any answers. And Obviously, I, I, you can't rule it out. He, he hit a, a different gear last season, the second half of SEC play. He could do that again this season. But if he doesn't, that's, that makes Tennessee's offensive problems a lot more legitimate long-term, a lot more past just they're not hitting open shots because they don't have – Springer's obviously one of them, and Fulkerson's the other guy that really has to create stuff for Tennessee's offense and get, get things moving. Um, and they could get – East Ponds could give them that production, but – and he obviously he did that to a degree on Saturday night. Now a lot of that was more from the perimeter. He hit I think three three pointers in that game. But he he can give him that. But I don't think he will ever be at the the consistent level and that Fulkerson can in the way that Fulkerson can draw respect in multiple defenders when he's playing well. My answer to the to I guess the question I posed the biggest long term concerns and I don't think this has been something that we didn't know before this week. I think it's been exposed more this week. Is that Tennessee is completely has not figured out their post step issues. That was something that it goes right. It goes right with the rebounding that you just mentioned, but that was a big question last year. They really just had Fulkerson and Ponce they could rely on in the front court. Same guys this year. They added EJ Anasicki, a guy who I think basically everyone thought would be a solid contributor, especially with the rebounding. He led the nation in rebounds last year. But you've really seen him, just a six seven guy. He's really struggled, I think, adapting to SEC basketball and the size of the of the big players. And, and it just hasn't he hasn't gone out and done exactly what they've been able wanted him to do, expected him to do. And then you add in Corey Walker, the injuries he's had. He's certainly he's not even. I was going to say he's not playing like a top fifty recruit. He's certain, he's not even playing. He's and obviously he's had injuries too. There's a lot of things that go around with that, but. That was one of the major questions Tennessee had to answer from last year's roster, this year's roster, was finding post-depth. And while we knew that they hadn't done a great job of that the first month of the season, you could tell that they weren't, they didn't have anyone on that bench they could get 15, 20 minutes a game from. You thought that they had some pieces that you can consistently get five and 10 minutes from, but that really hasn't been the case as Olivier Camois and EJ Anasicki are inconsistent at best of giving Tennessee just reliable minutes, let alone being a scorer or anything like that. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And I think if you look at it, I think the, the bench depth, depth specifically in the post is probably going to be the thing that maybe keeps this team from reaching its full potential because you're going to run out of bodies at some point against a good team that has a few good big guys. And they just, like you were saying, have nobody that they can really turn to off the bench. Yeah, and it's interesting you you mentioned that a possibly being downfall. And that's something that confuses me a little bit. Is and this is something Rick Barnes has always done. He's big on if a player gets two fouls in the first half, he's not going to put him back in. Mm-hmm. But with this Tennessee's Tennessee's team's Tennessee's team, goodness, I can't speak. Their lack of depth <laughs> in the front court. It's there's going to come a time in NCAA tournament where they're going to play somebody and they're going to get in foul trouble and they're going to need him to play. Now, right now. Barnes's response for the most part has just been to go to play small, play Josiah James at the four or Keon Johnson at the four. We've seen Devontae Gaines play a little bit of it the last few games. And that can get him through. That's 
those guys are all capable of playing the four. They can play small ball. But like you said, there's going to be a game and a time when Tennessee faces a team that has guy bigs that give them enough problems that if someone gets in foul trouble, Fulkerson or Pons, they're not going to be able to just throw Keon Johnson at the four. They're going to either have to get meaningful contributions from guys off the bench or are going to have to let Pons and Fulkerson play through foul trouble. And I think the former is probably pretty unlikely from what we've seen. So I'm a little surprised you haven't seen Barnes let those guys play through foul trouble. Now, some of it, I will say, like the other night, John Fulkerson got two quick fouls. They didn't see him. He was terrible in the first 10 minutes. I, you can't mm-hmm. blame Rick Barnes at all for not putting him back in. If yeah. the big guys aren't giving you good contribution, there's no point in playing in foul trouble. But for two seniors, I, I'm a little surprised he hasn't shown them a little bit more trust at sometimes this year. The Alabama game was a perfect example for Ponce. He kind of got two touchy-touch fouls. Close play yeah. the game. Let him play it out. I'm a little surprised you haven't seen that because I think there's going to be a point this year where he's going to have his hand forced potentially. Mm-hmm. Completely agree. Looking ahead to this week, Tennessee with a little bit easier test on Tuesday has Mississippi State traveling to Knoxville. The Bulldogs are nine and seven on the season after a really strong start to SEC play. They're now four and four in conference play. Two losses last week, both by well one by double digits and one by nine points. What have you seen from this Mississippi State team and, and what does Tennessee need to do to, to bounce back? Uh, I think Mississippi State poses some of the same problems Missouri did. They have some really good guard play that if Tennessee doesn't really lock up and start to you know defend hard like they did at the beginning of the season can really pose some problems. They have DJ Stewart averaging 18 points. I mean, he'll get going on anybody if they, if they leave him open. So I think that's definitely a problem. And then SEC veteran Abdul Adu in the paint, you know, uh, Tennessee's going to have to get to the basket at some point, but he's one of the best rim protectors in the history of SEC basketball. So I think that's definitely going to pose a huge threat for however Tennessee's offense is going to have to find its way. Yeah, and you talk about Abdul. He's – I mean, imagine we'll be matched up on John Fulkerson, and he's the type of player that has really given Fulkerson tons and tons of problems this year. And if Tennessee doesn't have Jaden Springer, I think that shot-blocking presence inside and – Tennessee's struggles of guarding ball control will make this one a much closer game. I think the spread came out at nine and a half about an hour and a half ago. That seems really high to me. Obviously, there's mm-hmm. a question whether Springer, there's a question whether Springer will play or not, and that, and that makes a big difference. But I think they present, like you said, a lot of the same problems Mississippi or excuse me, Missouri did. Two guards that average over 17 points a game. Tennessee's gonna have to be locked in from the guard, guard ball defense on that side, or, or they very easily will have themselves in another very close game that they, they could easily lose to a Mississippi State team that isn't great, but is certainly capable. Yeah. And then Saturday, the Vols get the kind of the premier matchup on the on the schedule um, with Kansas coming to Knoxville for the SEC Big 12 Challenge. Now, a game that lost a lot of luster last week is both Tennessee and Kansas were ranked in the top 10 and lost two games. Tennessee, obviously, we already mentioned, dropped to 18. Kansas dropped to 15 in the polls. And I think that's a big test for Tennessee. And a big opportunity more than anything. We've we talked about a little bit, just you and I, I think that without the pre-SEC schedule that Tennessee had formed for itself, which had a lot of good good games and good tests, Gonzaga, and with the downward na- or nature of the SEC this year, though Rick Barnes may disagree, disagree with me on that, um, there aren't a ton of opportunities for Tennessee to get big premier wins. And this is, this is definitely the biggest one they have left on their schedule. So a, a big test for Tennessee, a, a Kansas team that's 
not nearly as good as they've been the past few years. They lost a lot of talent from last year's team that was going to be the number one overall seed in the NCAA tournament, but still a really good test. And one thing I think will be interesting in this, now obviously college basketball, there's so much turnover in rosters. There's not a ton of players that are the same, but Tennessee's played Kansas the last two seasons and lost very close games. So it'll, it'll be interesting, I think, to see if Tennessee has a little bit of a extra chip to, on its shoulder to come out and get a, a win over a premier blue blood. Yeah, I definitely think it'll be interesting, like you were saying. And I also think the added element that, you know, the college basketball world will kind of have its eyes fixed on Knoxville this weekend for the first time this year. And I think it's a lot of, uh, I don't want to say pressure because, you know, ultimately you just got to go out and play the game. You're not really worried about the eyes on you, but it definitely builds up the atmosphere that they're probably not going to have until, you know, a late SEC tournament run or an NCAA tournament run this year with the lack of Kentucky being good. And, you know, while Florida beat us, they're still not at the peak of where they usually are in SEC basketball. So it's definitely going to be a a crash course and, you know, high rated college basketball, I think, for some of the younger guys. Yeah, definitely. It's the uh, ESPN primetime six o'clock game, um, kind of the I guess the end mark on a day of Big 12 SEC basketball kind of supposed to be the premier matchup. So I'm sure there will be a lot of eyes on Knoxville Saturday night. We'll have everything covered for you this week between Tennessee's Tuesday matchup against Mississippi State. And as just noted, Saturday night's matchup with Kansas. We'll be back in segment three for some Lady Vols talk as the Lady Vols got a big win on Sunday, knocking off a top 10 Kentucky team. And they're starting to play maybe the best basketball of the Kelly Jolly Harper area era. And we'll get to it next. Welcome into the third segment of the Checkerboard Chat. I am joined now by the assistant sports editor here at the Daily Beacon and one of our Lady Vols beat writers, Joshua Lane. Josh, an exciting week for the Lady Vols, a a tough loss, close loss to rival UConn 67-61 to on Thursday, a game that Tennessee was really right in there going into the fourth quarter, and then a big bounce back win with a a ranked win over a good Kentucky team, 70 to 53. Um, just what were your, your takeaways from a, a busy week for the Lady Vols? Yeah, well, sure. First off, thanks for having me. Excited to be on. Um, but I guess the biggest takeaway that we we got from this was that, you know, I won't say that they were like a, supply, a surprise team, a sleeper, but I think some eyes are starting to open now with the Lady Vols. I mean, they did lose the UConn game, but they hung around in there for, you know, basically 35 minutes of the game. It's just right there at the end. You know, they kind of lapsed. They, they couldn't shoot there at the end. But then then they came out and they rebounded, too, from a very tough loss. Um, and they played Kentucky really well. I mean, basically a route of Kentucky. So um, I think the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway from this is that they're a good team. They learn from their mistakes. And they uh, they prove just how good they are on a Sunday against Kentucky. Yeah, it really seems like, you know, I've, the COVID year, it's hard to get a feel for how good teams are going to be in, in pre-conference play. I think that's the same with men's basketball, certainly. And obviously they had the COVID pause right at the start of SEC play, so you're not really sure what to expect. And obviously the disappointing loss to Alabama, but it's really been surprising how competitive they've been in every single game, I guess. Obviously they've won most of them, but that was the thing last year is they were able to take care of teams at the bottom of conference play. But it, it was almost kind of like the football team this year when they played the top teams that it, the close the losses weren't close. They weren't competitive in it. And that certainly seems to be be a big change. And obviously that UConn game leading going into the fourth quarter, right in at the whole game, a number three team in the country. What went wrong for Tennessee in those last few minutes? And what would that win have meant, not only for this season, but kind of this program as Kelly Harper tries to rebuild? Sure, sure. 
Well, uh, one thing Kelly Harper mentioned, and it was a little, it was a little hard to see, but um, they, UConn sort of changed their uh, defensive alignment. Obviously, uh, Gino Ariema, big time famous for using man coverage. And so they kind of went to more of a zone type deal there at the end. And I think that kind of threw off uh, Tennessee's offense. They weren't as comfortable with that. Maybe they hadn't prepared for it as much because they weren't expecting it. But for whatever reason, they're at the end in the fourth quarter. They just cannot hit shots. They, they missed, I don't, I don't know the exact number, but they missed a ton of shots there. And so I think kind of that change in defense that uh, UConn showed, that really threw off their comfort level and they were missing shots. And because of that, um, a big part of their game is also rebounds. So they weren't getting offensive rebounds. Uh, you know, UConn was hitting everything at that point. They had been kind of cold up in the game. But as it as it happens, you know, most times, just right when you're uh, right when you can't shoot, that's when the other team starts to get hot. So just a combination of all those factors sort of led to this. You know, they had a lead there. I think they were up by about five points, maybe going into the fourth quarter. And so they just sort of collapsed, just couldn't shoot, not getting the rebounds. They wanted a new defensive scheme from from UConn. But man, you talk about the potential there for a win for, you know, a statement, a season statement win, maybe a statement win for Kelly's Harper career, just her second year here, you know, to beat UConn in this, this old rivalry that they brought back. Um, it's kind of up in the air at this point, whether that's going to continue. So, you know, Tennessee and the Lady Vols, they really wanted to, really wanted to end this, uh, this rivalry series with the win at Thompson Bowling Arena, just to, you know, give something back for the fans, but they were in it and they were close, but they just couldn't hang on. Yeah, someone you kind of alluded to there a second ago, I was going to ask you about the future of the rivalry. And obviously, sure. I don't think anyone has the answers, including two coaches. I don't think they know what's going to happen. But what do you expect going forward? And do you think it was important? Obviously, UConn won both these games. But, I mean, UConn's program has been light years ahead of Tennessee the past six or seven years. And last year's game, obviously, UConn pulled away late. But Tennessee was in it in the first half. I think maybe down one at halftime. And then this year, it was a very competitive game. What do you think at least – the fact that the game's been kept competitive, do you think that'll make a, a difference in UConn wanting to continue to play and potentially building this back to a rivalry? Yeah, I definitely think I definitely think so. Um, we someone asked uh, Coach Harper after the game, you know, is this something that you want to see? And she was she was all for it. You know, she definitely said that, that was something she wanted. Um, I don't think I think Gino was probably probably a little excited to see this series continue, but maybe maybe not as much as Harper is, but. You know, it's definitely something that's so good for the game. I'll tell you, being there at that game, and it was just, you know, less than 20% capacity there, so it was maybe 4,000 people. But to hear the, the fans there in Thompson Bowling Arena, I mean, I can only imagine what the series was like back in its heyday. And it's such a good thing for uh, college sports for women's basketball. So, I, you know, I definitely think that it's something um, that's a, a, real, a real potential for it to come back in the future, given, you know, Tennessee – is now starting to be a lot more competitive this year as compared to where they've been basically since Pat Summit retired. So, um, yeah, definitely think so that uh, given how Tennessee's going, this it's a good possibility that the series will continue. One of the reasons you kind of alluded to Tennessee being more competitive this year and some offensive improvements has been the kind of coming out season for Ray Burrell. Um, last season, obviously, Renaya Davis is a great player, All-American, but Tennessee didn't have a whole lot past her Ray Burrell has really stepped up as a big option, leading scorer on the team, 16.5 points, shooting 45% from three. What has she been able to do so well this season to be effective, and how important has that been for Tennessee's growth as a, as a team? Yeah. Um, well, last, last season she started, I believe, nine games at the end of the year. 
Um, she was just a sophomore last year, so still kind of learning game plan, learning Coach Harper. Um, but this year, I believe I also heard that it was the first time since like middle school that she's had the same coach for like two years in a row. So I think a little familiarity with uh, Kelly Harper and her program, that probably helps a lot. Uh, coach talked about her uh, decisiveness, decision-making um, as being a big reason why. But I think the talent's always been there for her. She's gotten a lot more playing time this year. I'm um, obviously having Anaya Davis, you know, that they're, that's, she's going to take a lot of attention. So it opens up more opportunities for her. Um, there's just a lot more of a team effort from the posts and centers and every other position. So that opens up some opportunities for her as well. So I just, I guess a combination of all those factors, but really I, I say probably the biggest one is just having that familiarity with coach Harper, uh, you know, learning and growing there as a pair. Yeah, that's some Tennessee football level uh, staff turnover <laughs> consistently. Yeah. Um, so three weeks in the SEC play for the Lady Vols, about a month for the rest of the SEC. We mentioned that earlier, the, the pause at the start of conference play. Tennessee currently in third place, four and one. They haven't played too many of the top teams in the league. Obviously, Kentucky's up there. Arkansas is up there. Good wins over both those teams. Where, where are they at right now in comparison to what your expectation was? Well, right now, I think they're definitely uh, they're definitely exceeding expectations as far as the media is concerned. Uh, one thing that Kelly's always said is that, you know, of course, they're with the team every day. They were with them all summer and last year. So they're not surprised at the success. You know, they see them working hard, putting in the time. So they're not surprised. But from all, all of us in the media, I think uh, they were picked six in the SEC. So that's, you know, right in the middle of the pack. And now here they are at third. Like you said, they haven't played a ton of tough teams. But they've beaten a couple of good ones. They got a couple more good ones to come. So they're exceeding expectations, you could say, right now. Obviously, these next couple of weeks will be maybe not the next few ones, but later on as we get to February will be more telling as they uh, face South Carolina, Texas A&M, maybe some of these other tough teams. On the way out here real quick, obviously, not a super tough schedule at this point, a tough one last week. A little bit of an easier week now with Florida and Ole Miss, two and five and one and five in the conference. What does Tennessee need to do to keep things rolling? Right. Well, um, obviously, they're going back to the UConn game. Uh, they corrected their mistakes. That was one of the biggest things that Kelly Harper said was that, you know, we have we know the mistakes, but it's up to us as far as, you know, correcting them and moving on. And they did it very well against Kentucky. So it'll just be can keep the momentum rolling as they're going. Um, as you said, it's a little easier matchup. Uh, Old Miss and Florida, you know, they're, I think both have one win in the conference, about five losses. So could say they're easier matchups. Obviously, you know, anything can happen in the SEC. It's such a competitive, uh, such a competitive division. But um, I just say keep the momentum rolling. They're playing well right now. They just got to make mistake, uh, mistake-free basketball. Uh, they got to, they've dominated the post right now. So I'd say keep feeding down their um, points in the paint. That's been a big area for them. So just, you know, don't change your formula right now because it's obviously working pretty well for them. That is going to do it for this edition of Checkerboard Chat. Josh, I appreciate you coming on. We will have another edition next week. I'm sure there'll be a lot to talk about as Danny White tries to finalize his head coaching candidate and the Lady Vols continue with two games this week, as does the Tennessee men's basketball Team, thank you for joining us. Have a great Western week, everybody. Yep, thank you.